Please take your Bibles and turn to Jeremiah chapter 31, the prophet Jeremiah, who will be this morning in the 31st chapter. We've been for the summer in a series of sermons that we've given the title, The Christ is Coming. And the purpose of this series has been to turn to particular passages in the Old Testament that point us ahead to the coming of Christ uh, and both prepare us to receive Him, to anticipate Him, uh, but also that inform us about the nature of His work, uh, who He is and what He came to do. Of course, we in the New Covenant, day we live in now, we look back on the coming of Christ. These saints in the Old Testament were looking forward to the coming of Christ, but we're looking back and forward to the same event. And in doing so, even in these texts that look forward to the coming of Christ, we learn more about the Lord and who He is. This morning I've turned us to a pivotal text in Jeremiah 31. Let's read together verses 31 through 34. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people." And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, Pastor Ben, a moment ago, um, highlighted one of the great blessings of the new covenant that we enjoy, that is the curtain being torn in two and us having free and open access to you, Father, through the blood of your Son. Now as we come to this passage in Jeremiah 31 to consider other characteristics of this covenant, we pray that you would impress upon all of us a sense of wonder and privilege at the grace and mercy that is ours in Jesus Christ, that we would grow in our love for Him and our commitment to follow Him, Please, Lord, open your word to us now by your spirit. We pray together in Jesus' name. Amen. If you were a believing Jew living in the 580s or 570s B.C., the following things would have been true of you. First, you, along with the rest of the Israelites, lived in captivity in Babylon. The land which had been inherited by your fathers, promised by God Himself, was now gone, taken away from your people. The temple that Solomon had built was destroyed. The Ark of the Covenant was lost. There was no son of David on Israel's throne. God's people were captives in a foreign land, and all those ancient promises that you were taught as a child appeared to be forfeit. Second, it would be true of you as a believing Jew that many among your countrymen, among your fellow Israelites, 
did not believe in Yahweh. They didn't believe He was the true and living God. They didn't believe in His promises. Many of your fellow Jews, your co-members of the covenant that God had made with Israel, actually worshipped idols and hated God's law. Third, it would have been true of you perhaps as a child and as a young man or young woman before the days of captivity in Babylon that you observed the Jewish festivals and holy days with people who didn't believe the promises made to Abraham or to David. If you lived before the temple was destroyed, you perhaps would have had the memory of going up to temple a few times a year with others who perhaps even blasphemed God on their way to the temple, not believing in any of the significance or sacredness of temple worship. And yet, they, like you, nonetheless, were regarded as members of the covenant with Moses and part of God's special people, ethnic Israel. All these things would be true, and as a believing Jew living in Babylonian captivity, it would break your heart to know that God's covenant people, His special chosen race, the Israelite people, were captives in Babylon. And what would grieve you even more was that scores among your countrymen had no faith in Yahweh at all, had no regard for His law, and profaned His name through their wickedness, all the while bearing the name of God's covenant people, Israel. And what was perhaps more painful still was that these two facts were connected. It was through their disobedience, their failings as God's covenant people, that all the covenant blessings had been revoked. And that God's people found themselves in captivity in Babylon. And so it was to such people that the text we read this morning would have been the most sweet and held the deepest meaning. For in our text this morning in Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34, God promises that it won't always be like this but that He will undertake to change things by entering into a new covenant with His people, a covenant that would be completely different from the old covenant, a covenant that would finally ensure the salvation of God's people. This morning, friends, I'd like to talk about this new covenant, and I'd like to ask, what do we learn from Jeremiah 31 through 34 about the nature of the new covenant? Maybe that phrase, the new covenant, is new to you. Well, it's important that we all know and understand that phrase, because if you're a Christian here, you are a member of the new covenant. So what is the new covenant? What do we mean by that phrase? More particularly, what do we learn about what will characterize the new covenant from this passage in Jeremiah 31, verses 31 through 34? And I'm going to say we learn three things, three things, and these will be our three headings this morning. We'll spend most of our time on point number two, but three characteristics of the new covenant I want us to consider from Jeremiah 31. The first is this. It will be entirely new. It will be entirely new. Look with me at Jeremiah 31, beginning in verse 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt 
my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. First we read, behold, the days are coming. Behold, the days are coming. When Jeremiah gave his prophecy, the new covenant had not yet been inaugurated, though it had been anticipated. A new covenant had not yet been inaugurated. That would not happen until the coming of Christ, but it had been anticipated. Now, this is a very important point uh, that each of you needs to work out on your own in your own study of the Bible. But the point is this, the redemptive storyline of Scripture, we have 66 books, but those 66 books compose one united narrative by one author who's behind the 40-plus human authors. The redemptive storyline of the Bible is advanced through a series of covenants. It's advanced through a series of promises that God makes to particular people. The engine that fuels the redemptive storyline, the narrative of Scripture, leading us ultimately to Christ, is this idea of covenant. These various covenantal relationships that God entered into with His people. We've been considering some of these covenants in this series, haven't we? Uh, there was the promise made to Eve uh, that there would be a descendant, an offspring of the woman who would crush the serpent's head, uh, though the serpent would bruise his heel. There's this coming one, this son of Eve, who's going to defeat Satan and sin fully and finally. There is the covenant that's made with Noah. We haven't considered that covenant in this series, but uh, there the promise is that God will not flood the world, that He will not uh, just end the human race, but He will create a situation in which the human race will continue and His redemptive promises will be fulfilled. There's the covenant, the promise that is made with Abraham, first in Genesis chapter 12, and key to that promise was this promise that there would come a seed, an offspring from the line of Abraham who would bring blessing and deliverance and salvation to the nations of the world. Not just the Jewish people, but all the families of the earth will be blessed through this son of Abraham who is to come. And then there was the covenant made with Moses, uh, which involved the giving of God's law and the constituting of the people of Israel. And part of the promise was that there would come a prophet greater than Moses, who fully and finally and completely would speak forth the law of God. God's commandments would be in his mouth, and he would speak for God, and the people would listen to him. And then, of course, we considered a couple of weeks ago the promise made to David that there would come a son from the line of David, a king who would reign on his father's throne forever, and the Lord would establish his kingdom and his rule, and he would indeed rule over the nations. And, of course, we know that that king ultimately is Jesus Christ, the son of David. All these covenants, as they're presented in Scripture, advance the storyline of the Bible and in some ways prepare us for the coming of Jesus. But also, friends, in some way, each of these covenants anticipates what the Bible terms here in Jeremiah 31 as the new covenant, and they all, in some sense, find their fulfillment in the new covenant. Now, in Jeremiah 31, we have the new covenant anticipated, not in terms of a covenant being made that finds its fulfillment in the new covenant, like those other covenants I just mentioned, but rather we have a prophecy made concerning what the new covenant itself will be like when it's inaugurated and ratified. Uh, so here in this passage, we're not dealing with foreshadowing of what's to come, but rather Jeremiah is here directly talking about the thing itself. This new covenant that is in some sense anticipated in all these other covenants, now he's talking about it directly, and he wants to tell us what that covenant will be like. Something grand and glorious is coming. 
Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord. And here we get a picture of what those days are to be like. The Bible's answer and solution to man's greatest problem, namely sin, is coming, and it will come in the form, we learn here, of a new covenant. So we read, verse 31, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. The covenant is said to be a new covenant. It has not occurred yet. Something new is going to happen when we get to Christ. There is something that is going to happen in this covenant that has not yet happened. Uh, There is something new that God is going to bring about, a new work, and there will be new promises, new fulfillment, some new covenant that God is going to bring about, and it will change everything. It will be entirely new. Then notice verse 32. We read this new covenant is not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. This is another huge point of biblical interpretation here. This is is part of us as Bible people learning to put our Bibles together and to better understand the Scriptures. One of those matters of interpretation, I think, that every Christian needs to understand clearly. This new covenant that God speaks of through Jeremiah here in this passage, this new covenant is to be especially distinguished from one covenant in particular. I'll say that again. This new covenant is to be especially distinguished from one covenant in particular. It is not the covenant with Adam and Eve. It is not the covenant with Noah. It is not the covenant with Abraham. It is not the covenant with David. This covenant is to be particularly distinguished from the Mosaic covenant. That is the covenant that God made with the nation of Israel through Moses. It is this covenant, the covenant with Israel, made through Moses, which we often call the Mosaic covenant. It is this covenant that the New Testament will refer to as the Old Covenant. Maybe if you're familiar with the New Testament, you've read that language before, the Old Covenant. It's important we understand, brothers and sisters, the Old Testament as a whole is not the Old Covenant. The covenant with Abraham is not the Old Covenant. The covenant with David is not the Old Covenant. The Old Covenant, according to the Scriptures, is the covenant made with Israel as a nation through the prophet Moses. In the New Testament, this covenant is referred to sometimes simply as the law or the law of Moses. Sometimes it's actually simply referred to as Moses. It's kind of a stand-in for that whole covenant. It's referred to as the old covenant in a couple of places as the old administration. And often, New Testament writers will highlight and emphasize that this old covenant is over. It is ended. It is finished. It is null. It is abrogated. It is done away with. The new covenant brings about the end and cessation of the old covenant. I'll say that again. The new covenant, when it comes in Christ, brings about the end and cessation, the ceasing, of the old covenant. Now, here's what that does not mean. That does not mean that the Old Testament is done away with. Old covenant is ended, curtains torn in two, we have a new covenant with better promises, we have Jesus, no need for the Old Testament anymore. That's not what I mean when I say that the Old Covenant is abrogated and 
ended by the new covenant. Furthermore, it does not mean that all forms of law are bad. Okay, so even though the Mosaic covenant, the covenant made with Israel through Moses, the old covenant, is often referred to as the law covenant, which is ended, doesn't mean that all forms of law are bad. This is another important point of biblical interpretation. The Bible uses the word law in at least four or five different ways. You would do well as a student of the Bible to discern in each context, now, in what way is the word law being used here? Uh, It's that way in our own context. We use that word differently in different ways, even in modern English. Uh, Furthermore, when I say that the old covenant is ended and has ceased in the coming of the new covenant, that does not mean even that everything God said to and through Moses is irrelevant for the Christian. There's much that God said to and through Moses that is very much relevant to us, and it is still part of Scripture, and all Scripture is breathed out by God, and it's profitable for doctrine and reproof and for correction and instruction in righteousness. However, when I say that the old covenant is ended in the coming of the new covenant, that is to say the covenant that God made with Moses as a covenant is no longer in effect for the new covenant people of God. It is over, fulfilled, and ended in Jesus Christ and the new covenant. Okay, so if the new covenant is not going to be like the Mosaic covenant, back to our text in Jeremiah 31 verse 32, it's not going to be like that covenant that God made with Israel through Moses when He led the Israelites out of Egypt by the hand. If it's not going to be like the Mosaic covenant, the old covenant, then we need to know what that covenant was like. If we're to understand in what ways the new covenant is different from it. In what ways the new covenant is superior to the Old Covenant, and the Old Covenant inferior to the New. So what is the Mosaic Covenant? What is the Old Covenant? What happened in that covenant? What did God do? What was the nature of it? In the Mosaic Covenant, the covenant that God makes with Israel through Moses, God essentially constitutes Israel as a nation and makes them His special theocracy. That is a nation-state constituted under the law of God. They are regarded as His covenant people through an ethnic national covenant that constituted them as God's special people. And God's promise to them is that He would lead them. He would keep them in the land that He promised to them. He would protect them from their enemies. He would initiate and sustain all sorts of blessings toward them. The Mosaic Covenant was an extraordinary expression of the grace of God, and yet it was marked by a series of conditional promises. If the nation was obedient to God's law given through Moses, they would maintain their status as God's set-apart ethnic national people, and they would maintain the blessings of the covenant. If they failed to obey God's law, they would lose their status as God's special ethnic national people. Now, two things that are important to understand here as I say that. First of all, and hopefully you know this if you've been at Emmanuel for any length of time, no one in Israel, no one in the Old Testament, was ever saved through their keeping of the law. You have that clear, right? No one has ever been saved through their keeping of the law. Old Testament saints were only ever saved through faith in the promises of God, just like Abraham, who in Genesis 15, 6, we read, believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, which is how all of us are saved. Furthermore, their failings and their disobedience as individuals would not forfeit for them their salvation. 
We learned that through Abraham. He failed in many ways. We saw that in our series on Abraham uh, about a year or so ago. He failed in many ways, but did not forfeit the righteousness that he had through faith. However, Israel as a nation could indeed forfeit and lose their covenant benefits under the Mosaic Covenant. What Israel as a nation could lose through national disobedience would be their status as the national ethnic people of God and His presence and blessing with them as a corporate people. What the Mosaic Covenant did was constitute the people of Israel as a nation of people under the law of God. And the fate of Israel as a nation is at stake in the Mosaic Covenant, the Old Covenant, God's covenant with the nation of Israel through Moses. But individual salvation was not determined or secured ever through obedience to the Mosaic law. People were only ever saved through regeneration and faith. This leads to the second point we need to understand here. This is not the second heading, okay? Still under the first heading. The second point now we could say is Israel living under the Mosaic law, therefore, was a mixed group of people. The the people under the Mosaic covenant, the people of Israel, were a mixed group of people some of whom were regenerate, some of whom were not. Some of the Israelites knew the Lord. Some of them were idolaters. Some were saved. Some were not saved. This is because God's people under the Old Covenant, the Mosaic Covenant, were not constituted, brought together, on the basis of faith and regeneration, but rather upon the basis of being members of ethnic Israel by the flesh. You were rendered a member of the covenant, the old covenant, the Mosaic covenant, by virtue of your DNA, by virtue of circumcision, uh, by virtue of being born to Israelite parents, or converting to Judaism through embracing circumcision and other such rites. You were counted a member of the covenant not on the basis of regeneration and faith, but on the basis of the flesh, on the basis of being part of ethnic Israel. Israel. Okay, now back to our text. That was a needed excursus so that we could understand more the nature of the new covenant. The new covenant that God is going to make, we learn in verse 32, it's not going to be like that covenant that God made with the people of Israel through Moses when He constituted them as His special ethnic national people under His law. It's going to be different. It's going to be new. There are several texts in the New Testament that comment on this. And two big ones are 2 Corinthians 3 and Hebrews 8. Uh, We don't have time to turn to both, but I will ask you to turn to Hebrews 8. Please turn your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 8. I want you to see this, how the newness of this covenant, which is altogether better, replaces this old covenant. I said this a few weeks ago, the book of Hebrews, a good way to remember the thesis of that book, the words written over the book of Hebrews could be, Jesus is better. He's just better than everything that the Old Testament had to offer. The whole book is basically Jesus showing up the Old Covenant. Everything the Old Covenant couldn't do, Jesus does by the New Covenant. All of the Old Covenant's inadequacies, they are compensated for and satisfied by Jesus in the New Covenant. Jesus is the mediator of a New Covenant, and that covenant is better than the covenant made through Moses, who is the mediator of the Old Covenant. Okay, look at Hebrews 8. I want you to see how the New Testament reflects on the old covenant. Hebrews 8, look at verse 6. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old, 
as the covenant He mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, and then the writer of the Hebrews quotes our text. So what we learn in Hebrews 8 is that this new covenant was necessary because the Lord found fault with that first covenant. It was defunct. It was dysfunctional. It had a built-in kind of obsolescence. That's a big word, I guess. It was obsolete. It was supposed to be obsolete. The Lord wasn't surprised by this, but this old covenant could never accomplish the things that are accomplished in the new covenant, and the Lord found fault with this covenant, particularly with those with whom He engaged in this covenant, the Israelites themselves. So then He quotes our text, verse 8, for He finds fault with them when He says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. Look at verse 13 of Hebrews 8. In speaking of a new covenant, He makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. What is the author to the Hebrews saying? In Christ, you have a new covenant, and it is so much better than the old covenant. And in Christ, you have the mediator of a new covenant, and He is so much better than Moses, the mediator of the old covenant. And in the coming of this new covenant, the old covenant is made obsolete. It is null. It is over. It is Finish. We are no longer under the Mosaic Covenant. Christ has come, and He has established a new covenant, and this covenant is not like that old covenant. It is entirely new. Okay, now, heading number two. So, the first characteristic of the new covenant we learn in Jeremiah 31 is that it will be entirely new. Second, what do we learn about the new covenant? Number two, it will ensure regeneration of the heart for all its members. It will ensure regeneration of the heart for all its members. Look with me at verse 33. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days. Don't have time to explain this, but Paul says, Romans 9, not all who are of Israel are Israel. Those who are the true Israel are those who have faith in the promises of God. Uh, you here this morning, if you believe in Jesus Christ to the saving of your soul, you are an Israelite. The true Israel not ethnic Israel. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. Notice first these words. Notice the first promise given, verse 33. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. What is being promised here? I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. What does that mean? Well, for a moment, consider the nation of Israel. They had, in some sense, the law of God. They had the Torah. The Apostle Paul acknowledges as much in Romans 9 verse 4. There he says, they are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law. The Israelites had the Ten Commandments written on tablets of stone and delivered to them 
by Moses. The covenant with Israel through Moses was so associated with law that oftentimes it is simply described in the New Testament with the shorthand phrase, the law, or the covenant of law. The law of God permeated the Mosaic covenant. So what new and better thing is being foretold here about the new covenant? Okay, here it is. What is going to change in the new covenant is the location of the law. It will be written on their heart, meaning God will give to all the members of this covenant a new heart to love and to keep His commandments. In other words, their hearts will be changed such that they will love the law of God and do the law of God. Where once the law was only externally imposed on hard hearts that did not wish to do God's will, in this new covenant the situation will be different. The law will not be imposed from without, but will be loved and treasured and followed from within. Where once the law of God was written externally on tablets of stone, now it will be written internally on tablets of the human heart. God will change the hearts of the members of this covenant. They will all of them be turned from being rebels against the law of God into lovers of the law of God. In a word, they will be regenerated. They will be born again. They will be converted. They will be made New. This is what is meant by this language, the law written on the heart. We actually use uh, our language in this way as well. Uh, what is written on your heart or what is in your heart is what? It's what you love, right? Uh, when I was a little kid, my dad was a big Frank Sinatra fan, and uh, Frank Sinatra had a song, I don't think he wrote it, he didn't write any of his songs, but he had a song, I've Got You Under My Skin. Know that song? I've got you under my skin. I've got you under my skin. I've got you deep in the heart of me, so deep in my heart that you're really a part of me. And my dad, whenever that would come on the radio, he'd, he'd get my attention. He'd say, Alex, this is our song. And uh, he would say, uh, sometimes he'd say, you know, when I die and they, they cut me up, uh, I want you to tell them that you want to have my heart. This is getting actually kind of dark now that I say it that way. <laughs> but there's a sweet point. He said, I want, I want the doctors, Alex, to give you my heart because you'll see your name is written there, and I want you to have it. And, and what was he saying by that imagery that this would be our song and that my name was written on his heart? He was saying, I love you. What is written on our hearts is that thing that we love, that thing that we treasure, that thing which is meaningful to us, which we value, which we adore. And so that's how the language I believe is being used here in this passage. The law will be written on the heart, meaning the law will be treasured by my people. No longer will there be a situation where God's covenant people profane the law of God. No, in the new covenant, all my covenant people will love my law. It will be written on their hearts. For God to write the law on the heart means He's going to change the heart. He's going to regenerate the heart. He's going to cause us to be born again and to be made new. The members of this new covenant will be different from members of the old covenant. Their hearts will be changed by the supernatural power of God, and they will be made into lovers of His law. And friends, this is precisely what happens in our conversion. Now, in our regeneration, in our salvation, those who once hated God's law, His will, and His ways, we are so changed, so regenerated as to become lovers of God. 
and to be lovers of His law and lovers of His will. And this is what is being promised here in Jeremiah 31 about members of the new covenant. In this new covenant, God will regenerate its members. God is saying, I will make them to love my law. I will change them such at the heart level uh, that they will come to love and keep my commandments. So I pause here just briefly for a quick word of application. As I said, this is what happens in regeneration. If you've been regenerate, if you've been born again, this is what happens to you. We are to be made into lovers of God's law. How do you know if you are a Christian? How do you know you're a believer? How do you know you're a child of God? Well, the Bible identifies many fruits of regeneration, evidences of saving faith, indicators that one has been truly born again. And one of the most important tests of one's faith is one's attitude toward the law of God. Let me say that again. One of the most important tests of one's faith as to whether or not it's genuine, if they've really been regenerated. One of the most important tests of one's faith is one's attitude toward the law of God. Uh, So sometimes I meet with people regularly, membership interviews, or, or folks that are just trying to discern, am I truly a Christian? Have I been born again? Am I saved? And so often, uh, I, I would say this is more often the case than not, uh, their approach to resolving this question of whether or not they're really saved or regenerated is to sort of breathlessly hunt for some kind of emotional experience in their background. Uh, so, so was there a time when I was seven? You know, I think it was then that I felt that God was near to me. Or there was a time when I was 12, I think, I, I think it was then I felt sorry for my sins. They're searching for some kind of past experience. I'll just tell you, that's never what we're looking for. When we ask that question, are you a Christian? Tell me, have you been regenerated? How do you know that you're a Christian? Uh, rather, what we're interested in are the present tense realities about your life uh, that we're told in the Word are constitutive of saving faith. The Bible gives us numerous indicators and evidences of what will be true of those who have been saved by the grace of God, who have been regenerated. They'll love the Bible. They'll love the brethren. They'll love corporate worship. And one of the things they will love, we're told, is the law of God. I'm not talking now about the dietary laws of the Old Testament or the ritual cleansing laws. I'm talking about God's moral purity and God's righteous standards the paths of life and righteousness that He is pleased to lead us in. My friend, the only acceptable Christian attitude toward God's commandments is love, an attitude of love toward God's law, delight in the law of God, gladness in all His ways, joy in His righteous precepts, which for some people requires a shift in our thinking. Uh, this is, is, is one of just the worst things about the kind of contemporary evangelical milieu we live in. It's customary to talk bad about the law, right? Uh, so, so Christianity is about uh, uh, not a religion, it's about uh, relationship. Uh, uh, the law says do, Jesus says done. Uh, it's not about law, it's about love and other such inane and insipid phrases that are totally insupportable by the Bible. 
have nothing to do with what the Scriptures actually say about what Christianity is like and what the Christian life is like. Jesus goes as far as to identify obedience to His commandments as the very proof of love for Christ Himself. Jesus says, John 14, verse 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Verse 21, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. John 15, verse 10, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. What about this one from 1 John 5, verse 3, for this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome to us. Do you find God's commandments to be a burden? I don't like God's commandments. I don't like obeying His precepts. I don't love His law. That's one of the surest signs, my friend, that you're not a Christian. But if, positively, on the other hand, you love the law of God, not that you keep it perfectly, we all understand that, but if you love God's law and you want to walk in the paths of righteousness and and you know that in fulfilling His will and in following His commands there's fullness of life and there's spiritual flourishing and that there's good to be had in obeying the law of God and that God's ways are right, my friend, that's one of the surest signs that indeed you are a Christian. And our text this morning tells us this. Those who are truly members of the new covenant, members of Christ's churches, those who have been truly regenerated, they will love the law of God. One of the distinguishing features of members of this new covenant is their new attitude toward the law of God arising from within them, arising from a heart that has been regenerated by the grace of God to turn them away from sin and rebellion and law-breaking to a reverence and love for God's law. I will put my law within them, the Lord says, and I will write it on their hearts. God will do this. In the new covenant, He will change His people from within. This is the promise of regeneration. But this promise that all the members of this new covenant will be regenerated is further expressed in the last words of verse 33. Jeremiah 31, verse 33, He says, I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Uh, Though many in Israel feigned an attachment to God by virtue of circumcision, or by their ethnic identity as Israelites, or having believing parents, these members of the new covenant will truly know God. They will have real knowledge of Him. They will truly have Him as their God, and they will be His people in the fullest and truest sense. And now, listen to the situation that this creates in verse 34. What will this mean in the new covenant, if each member is regenerate, if each member has the law of God written on his or her heart, if each member truly has God as their God, what will be the resulting situation? Verse 34, in this new covenant, the age in which we live, no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, know the Lord, for they all shall know me, from the least of them to the greatest declares the Lord. What's going on here in verse 34? This is the prophet describing a situation that had never been experienced in all of Israel's history. A situation in which each member of the covenant would be regenerate and would know the Lord. 
See, what was the situation under the old covenant? Evangelism was necessary among the members of the covenant. If you were a believing Israelite, you could not assume that your fellow Israelites actually did believe the promises of God. Uh, You couldn't even be sure that they weren't idol worshipers. If you were a believing Israelite, you had to evangelize your neighbors. You had to go to Joseph next door and you had to say, Joseph, I know you're an Israelite. I know you're part of the Mosaic Covenant, but that's not the issue. I know you've been circumcised. I don't know how I would know that, but I know you've been circumcised. But you need, Joseph, to be circumcised in your heart. You need to be regenerated from within. You had to evangelize people in church in the Old Covenant. But what we read here in Jeremiah is that it won't be this way. In the new covenant, in the new covenant family, in the church, there will be no members of this covenant who need to be evangelized, for they will all know the Lord, from the least of them to the greatest. Because if you've become a member of the new covenant, by definition, you are regenerate. Let me say that again. If you've become a member of the new covenant, if you're a a covenant member, you are by definition regenerate. So a couple implications follow for us. This passage, brothers and sisters, becomes the basis of our belief in what's called regenerate church membership. Uh, So we believe the church is the expression of the new covenant community. It's Israel in the Old Testament, ethnic Israel. In the new covenant, who are God's people? The church. And it's on the basis of this passage and others that we believe only those who show evidence of having been truly regenerated by God's Spirit may be members of the local church. Which, friends, appreciate, I know this flies in the face of our culture. You have very big megachurches out there that, that have slogans like, belonging before believing. That idea is intolerable, according to this passage. The idea that you would allow into the membership of the church and acknowledge as members of the covenant community uh, people who have no regard for God or His law, do not love Him, maybe don't even believe the facts of the gospel itself. Rather, the direction is the exact opposite. Believing leads to belonging. If you've been regenerated, if you've had faith in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, if you're trusting in His blood of the covenant, it is thereby that you belong to the new covenant. It is actually by becoming a regenerate child of God that you then find your place of belonging among the people of God. So this is why in the membership process, we have this in our documents, uh, all those who are going to be received into membership, they have to satisfy a few requirements. Uh, One of them is they have to clearly articulate their faith in the gospel, like through words, and show evidence of a regenerate life. We want to know as best we can tell, and we make mistakes all the time, but we want to know as best we can tell that you truly are regenerate because according to this passage, only those who have had their hearts changed by the supernatural power of God have been regenerated and born again and have have had the law written on their hearts. Uh, Only to such belong the benefits of membership in the church among the people of God. There is a second implication then that follows for us in this passage. This passage of Jeremiah 31 becomes in part the basis for our belief that we should only grant the right of baptism which is the sign of membership in the new covenant, only to those who evidence true regeneration and faith in Christ. What was the sign of the covenant under the Old Testament? It was circumcision. And because you did not need to be regenerate to be part of that covenant, it was advanced to unregenerate people. And so you had a mixed body of people, some who did not know the Lord and some who did. They needed to evangelize each other in that covenant. But in this covenant, 
There are only to be regenerate members in the covenant, those who have had the law of God written on their hearts. And as baptism is the sign and seal of covenant membership, it ought not ever to be advanced to one who has not been regenerate in heart, but is only to be given as a sign of true union with Christ and regeneration and faith in Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The members of this covenant will know the Lord. They will have a saving relationship with Him. Now, I want you to use your imagination and step into the shoes of a Jew at this time. They're in Babylonian captivity when this is written. They are in this mess, captivity in Babylon, precisely because of this issue. They were unregenerate. Members of the covenant were unregenerate. Their hearts were hard. Even if there were some regenerate members among them, which of course there were, Jeremiah is among them, the nation as a whole had been disobedient. They were idolaters. They forsook the law of God. They didn't love the Lord. They didn't have hearts that knew Him and loved Him and His will. But now, now in our passage, Jeremiah prophesies a time in which their current situation would be absolutely unthinkable. In the new covenant, they all will know me, the Lord says, from the least to the greatest. And you imagine, this had never happened in Israel's history. They'd never been in a situation like this. How glorious this would have been to Israelites living under the old covenant. And they might be thinking, how could this be? That there would be a day where all the members of the covenant will actually No, the Lord God is going to have to do something so supernatural, something so wonderful, something more and something better than He has yet done to create a situation in which every member of the covenant community will actually know Him. How will this be? When will this be? How will this be brought about? Here's one way you can think about this to understand their situation. Imagine that as a local church, we allowed into the membership of the church anyone who wanted to be a member. So, you could have among the membership atheists uh, and hedonists, people who didn't even believe the Bible was the Word of God. And the people sitting next to you may not have any faith at all in the things that we are talking about this morning. They may not have come for any reason uh, to worship God, to do anything other than be entertained in some form or fashion. And imagine how that would poison and dilute our Christian fellowship. In fact, it wouldn't even be Christian fellowship at all. Uh, The gathering of the church would be no different than gathering in the Dean Dome for a basketball game. You may be really thrilled about your team, but there's nothing beyond fandom that is uniting you. Well, so there was nothing uniting many of these Israelites except for sharing the same DNA as Jewish people. You imagine how sad that would be, how it would break your heart to see your fellow countrymen going after idols. But the promise is, these Jews would have heard, in the new covenant, it's not going to be like that. When the covenant people gather, they will together treasure the things of God. They will love His Word. They will love one another. They'll love corporate worship. They'll call upon His Spirit to be among them and to be with them. These will be secured as benefits in this new covenant. This is the promise. In this new covenant, God Himself will ensure regeneration of the heart for all its members. The law will be written on their hearts, God will be their God, and they will be His people, and they all will know Him from the least 
to the greatest. All right, thirdly and finally, and most briefly. Three characteristics of the new covenant. Number one, we said it will be entirely new. Number two, we said it will ensure regeneration of the heart for all its members. Thirdly and finally, it will guarantee the forgiveness of sins for all who trust in the Lord. It will guarantee the forgiveness of sins for all who trust in the Lord. And here I'm just working with those glorious words, last words of verse 34. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. What will be true for all the members of the new covenant? Their sins will be forgiven. That's not to say before the new covenant that God did not forgive anybody's sin. Of course He did. But it is to emphasize that a feature of this new covenant promise is that all the members of the covenant will have their sins fully and finally forgiven. And whatever is needed to secure their redemption, it will be accomplished by God Himself. Of course, Israel had only the foggiest notions of what would be required to secure this kind of redemption. It did not occur to anyone in the Israelite community that the forgiveness of their sins could only be secured through the death of the Son of God. All they knew was that full forgiveness was promised and would be secured for all the members of this new covenant. And this benefit of the new covenant, namely the forgiveness of all our sins, we learn that it can never be revoked. The promise that we, the members of the new covenant, will have our sins forgiven, this can't be forfeit. It can't be lost because it depends not on our obedience. It depends on the unilateral power and grace of God. See, the Israelites could not say that. I mean, they could say that about their sins being forgiven through the covenant made with Abraham. But in terms of the benefits of the old covenant, the Mosaic covenant, the idea that they would stay in the land and they would, they would uh, have God's protection from their enemies, they lived always knowing that blessing and that benefit could be revoked through their disobedience. If you were growing up in Israel and you were living in the land, uh, you could have no assurance that your grandchildren would live in it. Because whether or not we will continue to live in the land will be if we continue to be faithful to the Torah, uh, to the Mosaic Covenant, through the law of God. See, it was conditional. But what we learn here in Jeremiah 31 is that the benefits of the new covenant, namely the washing away of all our sins, can never be revoked because it depends not on our obedience, but on the grace and love and mercy of God. He says, I will remember their sins no more. Just think on that. Think of yourself. Think of your own situation. The Lord says, as a member of the new covenant, I will remember your sins no more. It has so often been a consolation to me in the memory of old past sins that make me ashamed, and in the experience of sin in the present, uh, to know that one of the signal promises of the new covenant is that God will forgive my sins and that He will remember my sins no more. He doesn't think on them. He's not like you and me, who so often keep a record of wrongs committed against us. He's not doing that. 
Uh, He will not hold our sins against us. He will forget them. He will remember them no more. He will remove them, as Psalm 103 says. As far as the east is from the west, so far as He removed our transgressions from us. My friend, if you are a child of God, He has forgiven your sins. And He has pledged Himself, indeed, covenanted with you as a member of the new covenant. He has promised you that He will not hold your sins against you. He will not count your record against you. He will remember your sins no more. I've often thought, I thought this before I was a Christian and then after, how horrifying it would be to stand before the all-knowing, all-righteous, thrice-holy God clothed in nothing but my wicked sins and all the worst things that I had done. What a horrifying prospect. Some of you here, that's where you stand right now. If you were to appear before God today, you would be appearing before Him only clothed in your sins, which sort of makes you understand the image the Bible uses. What will people do if that's their situation? They're going to beg for the mountains to fall upon them and cover them. They're, they're looking for the mightiest thing that could stand between them and God because they know they're answerable to Him and accountable to Him, and they've sinned against Him. And to be clothed only in your sins, what a terrifying prospect. Before a righteous and just and holy God to whom we must answer. How horrifying to have God think of me only in the light of the worst things that I have done. But friend, it's not that way with God if you've been saved. It may be that way with the people you've hurt and offended in your life. It may be that way with our culture. We are so quick, too quick to define people by their worst deeds. What you did back then, that is who you are. That is who you always will be. And once the world sees it, the verdict will be passed and you will be canceled and condemned forthwith. But friend, it is not that way with God. With Him, our worst sins don't define us. If we are His, He does not think of us according to the worst things we have ever done. He doesn't think of us according to our sins at all. To those who have repented of their sins and trusted in Christ, He forgives their sins and remembers them no more, and He sees us and considers us and thinks of us as His dear sons and daughters through the merits of Christ, through His blood which covers us and atones for every stain of sin. I wonder if you've felt this in your heart, oh, what I would do to be rid of that dark blot, that dark stain in my background, of all those wicked sins I could never take back. But there it is, right? The portrait is hung up on the wall. There's the record of all the wrong I've done. You can't go back in time and undo what has been written down in permanent ink. My friend, the Christian faith promises a way by which all those sins that make you so ashamed can be forgiven, can be in some sense blotted out, erased, so that rather than standing before God clothed in all your faults and all your shame and all your sin and all your rebellion and every wicked thought and bitter deed that you have ever committed, you will stand before Him in robes whiter than snow through what Jesus Christ has done on your behalf. 
For in this new covenant, the Lord says, I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. No more. He will not permit your sins and your failings to come back into his mind. He will remember them no more. It's such an absolute statement. It's meant to be absolute. For those who are the children of God and members of this new covenant, it is meant to crowd out all your doubts that that sinful record could ever stand against you again. And it is meant to create for you a context in which you have full assurance that God has pardoned all your sins and that He receives you redeemed in Jesus Christ. This is the last word that I'll share. This will serve as our preparation for the table as we come to take the Lord's Supper. Before me, you can't see them now, you will in a moment. There are elements here. There's a cup of grape juice, fruit of the vine. There's bread. And you're going to see Christians in this church, members of the new covenant, come and take those elements and together we'll partake of them. What's being pictured here? The bread symbolizes the broken body of Christ given for His people. The cup symbolizes His shed blood. This promise of the new covenant is given in the 500s, 600s B.C. Six centuries later, as far as I'm aware, in the Bible, the words new covenant have not come up again. It's given here in Jeremiah 31. It pops up for a second, then it's gone. As far as we know in all of Jesus' ministry, up to this point, he has never used the term new covenant until he comes to the Lord's table. 600 years after the word given through Isaiah, Jesus assembles his disciples as he forms this new covenant community. And he says to them, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. You can imagine being those disciples, watching their countrymen reject Jesus for years. He came to his own, and his own received them not, because they weren't regenerate. But now Jesus says, I'm doing a new thing now, now. Those days that are coming, they have come. And now as you take this cup, this is the inauguration of a new covenant in my blood, meaning that through my sacrifice of myself to all those who turn from sin and trust in my death to atone for their sins, they will be made members of this new covenant. My blood will be the blood of the covenant, not the blood of bulls and goats, which couldn't do anything. But no, my blood, a sacrifice shed once for all, will be the blood of this new covenant. And you, my disciples, are invited in to partake as a symbol of what I am about to do for you in shedding my blood on the cross for the remission of sins. When we come to this meal now in a few moments, we are taking to ourselves those symbols of a new covenant. We are saying we belong to God and have had our sins forgiven, our lawless deeds forgotten through the blood of the covenant that Jesus has shed for us. Let's pray together. Our Father, how we thank you that in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. Who of us could stand before you 
If all our sinful deeds were known and exposed for the world to see, but most of all for the gaze of the living God to see. We thank you that through the initiatives of your spirit, the initiatives of love and mercy, you have so worked to create the situation by what you and you alone have done that we could have our sins forgiven, could have your law written on our hearts, could be so changed as to know you and to love you and to be known and loved by you. Father, we pray that as we celebrate communion together, that you would make these benefits of the covenant, what you, what you have secured for us through the blood of your Son, to be very sweet to us. And we pray that through these promises and through these promises symbolized in the supper, for any here who are doubting, crowd out all their doubts that you have and can truly forgive their sins and give to them robust assurance in the things of God in what you have accomplished through the blood of your Son. We pray together in Jesus' name, amen.